Even when you're taking an antipsychotic, you may still be suffering with the signs and symptoms of delusional disorder or morgulons. You try to put on a brave face, but your face is rotting off and there's morgulons coming out of it. It's all in your head and you're not alone. Two out of three people taking antipsychotics are still considered nut jobs by everyone that knows them. That's why I should ask your doctor about Lexadaisy Crazy Malabadab. Yes, adding Lexadaisy Crazy Malabadab to your existing regimen of ineffective medications has been shown. Numerous studies that we designed, paid for, executed, and cherry-picked for publication and FDA approval has been shown to alleviate the sense of being present in your own life. Alexa Daisy Crazy Malavadev is not for everyone. Call your doctor immediately if you develop any of the following. Suicidal depression, homicidal aggression, existential angst, porn addiction, anal leakage, eyes in the back of your head, death by hanging, death by swimming pool, death by Saudi Arabian, execution. It's been shown that all people feel like they got hit in the head with a hammer after taking laxatives of crazy malabadab, so you might not want to drive when you're on this shit, okay? You might want to just sit back and relax and listen to more Mortalons! It's crystal clear here. Wake up. Wake up. Yes. We've got a new episode. It's pretty academic. So only... Eggheads, scholars, and nerds. No, nerds are too cool. Dorks may stay from this point forward. So stay tuned. And thanks for listening. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. This work will look in detail at the philosophical context that frames the ways contested illnesses are experienced and understood by patients in the early 21st century. Contested illnesses, what are they? Let's have a contest and see who can find out. What's on? You're a contestant on contested illnesses. Look, nobody would get into a contest over cancer being real or not real, right? It's uncontested. What we have, morgues, if you have morgulons, is a contested illness. Anyway. Uh, so... This work will look in detail the philosophical context that frames the ways contested illnesses are experienced and understood by patients in the early 21st century. The key focus of this book is to trace with greater accuracy and, more importantly, greater reference to lived experience, the contours of belief and assumption which provide us with our collective map of disease. There is not an easy category in which to place this work. 
It is partly historical in that I utilize the writings of historians to provide insight into our contemporary concerns, and it is impossible to understand the current state of disease beliefs prevalent across society without paying attention to the historical processes which have deposited a way of viewing and feeling disease into our collective subconscious. It is also in part sociological in that I borrow from sociology ways of listening to and observing illness. Furthermore, sociology has provided us with the most substantial critique of the biomedical view of the body, meaning sickness and disease are when the body, which is a machine, a flesh and blood machine that works a certain way or it's broken, it's diseased. That's the biomedical model. Sociology views disease in a larger context of culture, politics, economics, you know, that kind of stuff. The society in which it occurs. And the individual's role is interdependent. Uh, and the disease process is um, a cultural affair, I guess, a social affair. Um, work is clearly interdisciplinary meaning all the disciplines, all the fields of study intermingling in this work. It is, own, it is most of all philosophical. This work here that I'm reading is a sample from a book by a guy associated with the Charles Holman Foundation. I'm sorry, sir, I'm asking your forgiveness, not your permission. Today, you have zero reviews on Google of this book. I think you need some publicity, man. I would take it if I were you. Uh, throughout my discussions, I return time and time again to fundamental questions of conceptualization. What do we expect a disease to look like? What prevailing notions dictate the way we are allowed to expect ourselves to be and in some way are ill? To whom does epistemic authority over these ideas belong to and originate from? To whom does epistemic authority? He's saying, who gets to say what the truth is when it comes to defining what illness is real and what illness is not real? Where did this, where did these ideas, where did this uh, authority to say what the truth is, where did it come from, you know? That's what he's asking. I mean, these questions to be read in a philosophical sense as attempts to probe beneath the surface of our reaction to disease. In other words, how does a sick person understand their illness metaphysically? How do people around them approach it? And what are the consequences of these beliefs? My argument to be expounded greatly in the following pages can be summarized as follows. Many, if not all, of the different concepts that philosophers associate with illness suffer a loss of clarity under stringent investigation. And it is doubtful whether they are theoretically resilient enough to be relied upon when constructing a coherent theory of disease. What does that mean? What does that mean? He's saying my argument to be expounded greatly in the following pages. So I'm going to talk y'all's ear off about my argument. It can be summarized, though. Let me sum it up for you. Many, if not all, of the different concepts that philosophers, so, you know, sociologists, psychologists, biologists, the PH and the PhDs. You see that what they say is so clear and simple is not so certain, not so clear, and incredibly various, multiple, 
and ambiguous. Not simple. Certain. All right, all right. You got me hooked. What else you got? What does emerge from their examination, however, is a more general impression, a broad framework through which it is possible to view the way disease is mediated and understood. From this, we were able to envisage what shape illness takes on unconsciously, implicitly, in the imagination, the ways in which it is expected to show itself and the ways in which people and institutions are expected to relate to it. In short, the way disease operates in our society. With this idea in mind, we consider, quote, contested illnesses, those which do not conform to our vision, those which lie outside of our expectations. The aim is not to show that people with these conditions are, quote, really ill or are deserving of sympathy, though this is, in my view, certainly true. Rather, I want to put it that we intuitively categorize disease according to certain predispositions, and when we encounter a phenomenon which contradicts these prejudices, a gap opens up between our expectations of disease and the condition itself, the thing before us. This gap creates a tension, a painful distance, but it is not purely theoretical. On the contrary, it is precisely in this space that harm occurs. This is found institutionally in the form of welfare disputes or dismissals from employment, interpersonally in the breakdown of trust and respect in a marriage, psychologically in the self-doubt and depression of an ill person who lacks an approved way of deciphering the way they feel in their body. My thought is that while much attention has been given to both analyzing concepts related to disease and to investigating the relationship between institutions and individuals of authority and patients, little focus has been granted philosophically to the ways in which we all, as friends, family members, colleagues, patients, contribute to and constitute the experience and meaning of disease. In other words, I think that the quest to define disease, to map the landscape of the doctor-patient relationship, to understand how patients interact with their condition as described to them institutionally, has issued the broader questions about the underlying metaphysical assumptions He's saying, let's set everything else to the side, get back to the basics, and define our terms here. What is disease, and how do we, as members of a society, play multiple roles? Each of us as individuals plays multiple roles, right? We're colleagues, we're spouses, we're um, voters, we're, you know, we're lots of social selves, and um, all of those interactions are pretty dynamic and they're constantly evolving the definition of disease. Uh, Pretty interesting stuff here. Love the philosophy. I'm always sad, right, at times like these that I don't have a long beard to stroke. Mm. 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 Essentially, I say that we cannot define disease, but we can look at the ways it is defined. Who's doing the defining? Upon what basis they make those distinctions? And what the effects of such a demarcation are? 
caveats, of course, abound. This book does not aim to answer any questions of medical science. What this work tries to achieve instead is an illumination of the way in which the medical aspects of a disease, diagnosis, labeling, treatment, and so on, intersect with social beliefs about sickness and contribute to the manifestation of illness in an individual, both in terms of their symptoms and how they understand them, but also in terms of how those symptoms are greeted by others. Medicine is therefore just one of many components which have an effect on our idea of a disease, on our acceptance or rejection of a certain set of phenomena as a disease concept. It is afforded no special status in this analysis. However, it should be highlighted that contested illnesses would benefit from more clarity in this medical and other areas, and I hope that my work on this topic might inspire others in different fields to approach these difficult questions. Doctors, psychiatrists, health researchers, sociologists, and other philosophers will find some interesting topics discussed here and may wish to pursue them further within their own specialties. Also to be noted is that the overriding emphasis of this work is not to generate universals or to speak in grand terms, but rather to examine the specific and draw from it certain insights which may tentatively be said to represent something, if not nearly everything, that can be said about the topic. As such, it is difficult to see how the conclusions of the work presented below could be extended confidently beyond a Western context, and even then, a heavy bias towards UK and US sources is prevalent. This guy's like full disclosure here. I'm a white boy, and this is some white boy shit up in my ivory tower. That's how white we are up here. Or even our tower's ivory. All right, dude, we hear you, we hear you. I mean, you can only be yourself and speak from where you're living from. Um, appreciate you just laying it all out like that. Furthermore, consistent with my stated commitment to specificity, this book is anchored in a precise time and place. It makes no claims to represent anything more than a snapshot of a particular moment. I take a lead from Floridi, who writes that any timeless philosophy is a stagnant one. This is a book about contested disease as it is lived and understood here and now and nowhere else. Dude, part uno, contested illnesses, chapter one. Do we dare? This shit's pretty dense, y'all. Um, cool book, though, for real. It's uh, written by a guy named Harry Quinn Schoen, or Schoen, or Schoen, I don't know, S-C-H-O-N-E. Um, pretty cool dude. I just, I saw he had written an essay specifically that was like, on the internet and it had a letterhead from the Charles E. Holman. I was like, mm, what's this? And um, it is a pretty, again, dense academic uh, essay. Did not read it. Um, yeah, I was, I was browsing. I was surfing that web, y'all. Didn't have time for all that. Ain't nobody got time for all that, okay? But actually, I would love to. I would love to read the whole book. I mean, it looks great, but he's charging like fifty bucks for it. Maybe he would like to be interviewed on this show. I don't know. Y'all, I'm busy this job. Ugh. Who's doing work-life balance? Who's doing work-life seesaw? Who's doing work-life tightrope? Who's doing? The best they can with what they got. That would be me. I hope you had a great Monday. I actually was quite pleased 
with my Monday. And I am quite pleased that you hung in for this whole episode with me. And I do what I say and I say what I mean. And I never give up. You must never give up. Hang in there. Thanks for listening and stay tuned.